you're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. And uh, uh, this is a series that comes out of the book of Ephesians, and it's written by uh, the Apostle Paul to a very young church in a very um, mercantile and rich um, environment. And I read a, a news article this week about a guy named John Gray, who lives in Wisconsin. Uh, John Gray's story is a tragic one because he was uh, a homeless man who passed away at about the age of 60 and didn't have many friends or family to account for his life. Uh, But when they identified him, the police recognized that John Gray did have relatives. In fact, he had very rich relatives. He was related to some heiress, duchess person from the 1800s in New York, and he was actually uh, endowed $19 million of her $300 million estate. So Paul writes to us in the book of Ephesians on the basics, basis and premise that uh, a person that doesn't know they have money is just as poor as a person who doesn't have money. And that spiritually speaking, there's a difference between material wealth and spiritual wealth. A person that doesn't know what they have in Jesus is almost as poor spiritually as a person who doesn't know Jesus. And so there's this kind of urgency in the letter that the, that the church of Christ that gathers together day in, day out, and doesn't know what it has in its midst. It doesn't know that every prayer is answered. We sit in Sunday mornings like this and Monday afternoons coming and Tuesday afternoons coming, and we don't know there's angels encamped around our house. We don't know that by the time anything, any challenge or attack has ever come to us, it's always uh, filtered through the, the arms and the hands of a loving father, and that he has... Um, He has already won the most important battle, which is not the material one or the logistical one or the pragmatic one. It's the spiritual one. He's writing to a church, Paul is, just in Ephesians and also to churches like us in 2018 because we don't know how rich we are in Jesus. And wealth in Jesus that is unknown and unaccounted for is almost as bad as not having Jesus in the first place. And so I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, uh, starting in verse 1, whereas Ephesians chapter 1 talks about the materials and the possessions we have in Christ, um, Ephesians 2 focuses mainly on the position we have in Christ. So if you're a person that struggles with things like anxiety or panic or, or, or worry about the future, external realities, Ephesians 1 is your chapter. If you're somebody more like me who maybe has more internal struggles, things like shame or guilt or self-doubt or even self-loathing, then Ephesians 2 is your chapter. That's what Ephesians 2 is all about. So... Um, my favorite app on my phone, and everybody needs to have a favorite app, the one that you go to first is Instagram. But the one that I'm hanging on to is, is Facebook. Anybody still hanging on to Facebook? Facebook needs to get a little bit of attention. It's not my first app, it's my second app. And one of my favorite things that Facebook has done, kind of the thing that has gotten me back to Facebook more often than I should, is this thing called Facebook Memories. Facebook Memories is this thing that will pop up at the top of your newsfeed, and it'll collect some picture or post that you put up seven years ago that you completely forgot and wish you would have forgotten that you had ever posted in the first place. And it will post it without your permission. It will post it without a filter. And it will just kind of uh, post it exactly seven years to the day. Like, this is what you were doing seven years ago. 
And some of those pictures are, are fun to look at. Some of them are embarrassing to look at for me. It reminds me of all the different hairstyles I've had over the, the years. For some of you, it may be the different clothing that you're wearing, and you're thinking, how did I ever put that on and go outside of the house seven years ago? Some of you are thinking about how time flies. You realize how fast your kids grow up and how, how fast relationships change. You realize how fast things happen. I've caught myself looking at, at Facebook posts from Facebook memories, and I've just been jolted at the fact how fast time flies. I would have looked at a picture in there and thought, oh, yeah, that was, just, that was just yesterday. I remember that. That was so fun. What a sweet time of life. And then it's like, no, dude, you're getting old. That was seven years ago. And there's different feelings and emotions that are attached to that because oftentimes we have a sense of selective memory Sometimes Facebook uh, memories will put you in a, in a counseling chair pretty quickly because then you realize things like, oh man, I've been hanging on to that feeling for a really long time. Like, you know, like a kind of sense of unforgiveness maybe or bitterness or something that has gone on in your past and you're thinking, I've made progress on this. Like, you know, I, you know give me time and space. I've been, you know, this is a really hard thing and I've been working on it. And so Jesus understands I'm kind of taking space and my friends understand I'm, I'm taking my steps forward. And then you realize, man, like that season of life that I'm still angry about, that I'm still carrying on about, that I'm still letting inform my present, that was eight years ago. And you realize, uh, how, how, how time can be deceptive. Because we're bad historians, right? Like when we go to counseling and we share things with our therapists, the problem with that is that we are very selective in the things that we share, not because we're malicious, it's just because we're selective in the things we remember. Psychologists say we have a selective memory or a biased memory, and we can tend to remember the things that we want to remember in the ways that we like to remember them, and we tell the stories the way that we've always told the stories, but they're often inaccurate. And I think the reason why Facebook is so jolting is because it puts up pictures, not just statements, and the picture tells a thousand stories in a thousand words, and when you look at that picture from seven years ago, you're confronted with the fact that you can't tell yourself out of your own story. And you're reminded that in heaven, in the ultimate analysis, that there are no autobiographies in heaven. As much as you'd like to spin your story or twist your story or omit the facts about the story, the reality is, is that your story is your story whether or not you're realizing it or not. And Paul opens this chapter to, to explain to us the, the, the true story, the real story. Because there is a real story. We live in a very relevantist, relevantist world. I always struggle with that word. Where your story is your story, man. And how did you say, and my story is my story. And we agree to disagree and and, I, and that's, that's a healthy thing. I think there's a healthy deference when we get together when we share interpretations of stories. And we are entitled to our own interpretation, but we are not entitled to God's. And at the end of time, God interprets truth, not opinion. Like when you go to the bank and you say, I feel like I have $85. If you have $75, you don't have $85. There's a true amount of money that you have in there. If you have Go to the doctor and you have a certain amount of blood cell count and you wish you had more than you have and the doctor reads it. Well, guess what? The doctor's, one of you guys is wrong and it's not the doctor. Jesus, at the end of time, light will share on, on all things, all actions, all attitudes, all ambitions, and all motives. And Jesus' word will be true and ours will be a lie. There is truth in every situation. And so what Paul writes to us in our position of, of, of Christ is this understanding that a, a, a life that's based on a false sense of truth will always lead to a foggy sense of future. If we don't know where we're from, we do not know where we're going. 
And although it's hard and although it's hurt, it hurts, and although the truth can feel like an enemy at times, the truth within grace is our greatest advocate and our best friend. We have no healing, we have no hope, and we have no health if we do not find ourselves in truth. What he says about you, what he says about me. So this is our biography in heaven. We don't write our own story. We don't spin our own narrative. Paul opens with a pretty bleak message in Ephesians 2. He says, we are all born spiritually dead. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The Greek of that is not dying. The Greek is not, of that is not very sick. The Greek of not, that is not like headed in a downward spiral direction. The Greek of that is unreceptive, not reproducing, not having a heartbeat, not breathing, not doing the seven life signs of life. You were spiritually dead, physically alive, physically generous. Jesus says actually that pagans and people that don't know Jesus and don't have a spiritual health to their soul can look very... Um, have a lot of vitality on the surface. Jesus says that actually people without Jesus can parent. Don't you know that even people, the pagans, can parent their kids and give good gifts to their kids? People that don't know Jesus can parent well. If you don't know Jesus or in the times that you are not responding to Jesus, you can be generous to some degree. You can be a good friend. Jesus says even, even non-believers have good friends. They treat their friends well. That's, that's not the sign of spiritual health or unhealth. Jesus says that you actually can do good things uh, without God in the way that we would measure them in human terms, but spiritual life and death cannot be measured by good efforts or good works. Spiritual life and death has to be measured by the question, what do you do with the name of Jesus? And so every one of us in this room and every baby that's going to be born today in St. Francis Hospital or whatever, you know, Greenville Memorial Hospital or whatever hospital across this city and nation, every baby that's born today according to true theology in Ephesians 2, is a spiritual stillborn. And some of us have, have seen that and walked through that in a physical way. Some of the most painful experiences that I've ever prayed through, walked through, and seen is somebody giving life to a baby that does not have a heartbeat. But the reality is, is that every baby ever born of all time before, during, and after the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, every baby is born without a spiritual heartbeat. But because of Acts 2, because of Pentecost, because of the Holy Spirit, he falls on all flesh. There's a grace that begins to work. As soon as that baby is born, there's a working of the Holy Spirit on every baby, every man, every woman, every child to come back to life, to, rest, to have a resuscitation, to, to, to do a spiritual CPR that we might not be dead and living in dead uh, uh, spiritual things forever, that we might have life and life abundant in Christ. And you might say to me, that seems harsh. I mean, can't good people do good things? And, and aren't we generous? And aren't we family? And aren't we friendly? And aren't we giving? And aren't we all these things? I mean, there's kingdom in everything, right? Like it's, 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 it's got to be pretty close to Jesus, even if it doesn't have the name of Jesus, right? I mean, it's like it's an upside down kingdom and we're serving and we're loving and we're treating people with respect and we're serving the poor. And Paul says, none of it has any life if it doesn't have the name of Jesus in it. Because Jesus is the way Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the only life, and no one comes into any kind of spiritual health without the name of Jesus. When you say the name of Jesus, eternity enters into the room. 
All the words that you'll say today, they will be transformed. Those, we won't even use those words. The language will expire. The thoughts will expire. The philosophies will expire. The ideals, your ideas and your ideals, the plans that you have, they are all heading towards destruction. The only thing that finds life is those things that we pin uh, and attach and tether and connect to the name of Jesus. His name is the only name that has power. It's the only one that will be living at the end of eternity. His name is the only one that has life. His name is the only one that has a way to the Father. And so relationships that are not founded on Jesus, they, they don't have life. You'll meet a pretty girl at a, at a party and you'll go and talk to her, and that's not a sin. There's nothing wrong with having a relationship to flirt with somebody, to connect with somebody. But as I try and host and have relationships outside of the context of Jesus, outside of the authority of Jesus, I give myself to a different kind of authority. I have to. Because we're all, we're all under some authority. The very thing, the desire that you have in your heart when you go and talk to that girl, that's your authority now. She has your authority. And whether or not she responds or texts you back or dates you for three months or dumps you after six months, that will have authority in your life. And you know and I know that person is not going to offer you the life that you need. And so her in the place of the authority of Jesus, her without the name of Jesus, her outside of the realm and the authority in the context of Jesus is leading to a spiritual death. There's nothing that has life outside of Jesus. He goes on to say this in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those that are disobedient. He unfolds the narrative. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So Paul says that there's, there's, um, we are not alone. There's an ecosystem that we live in. It's invisible and it's like the air. It's the culture that you, that you walk into day in and day out. He says, we're not alone. There's a king, there's a ruler. There's somebody that is an enemy of yours. The Bible says that uh, the enemy that we have, he's not omnipresent, so he can't be everywhere. He's only uh, near you and next to you by nature of his associates, the one-third of demons that were cast out of heaven at the beginning of time because of their disobedience. And so we're not in a neutral state. We're not just kind of in a vacuum of good and evil. We have outside forces that want to impose upon us. We have systems that, uh, that want to re-educate us and inform us against our nature, against our good nature, against our God nature. And they speak to us, not all the time in terms of I'm going to haunt you or, 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 or oppress you or visit you or, or, or kind of like scare you. Oftentimes, the kinds of the powers, the principalities that come at us, they just look like simple things like trying to have a good life without God. And they create a system and a world that we're inundated of and completely ignorant that we live in it. These principalities and these powers, they're, they're, they're talking to us and convincing us to continue in our death because we believe somehow that, that in living a life without God, somehow we'll find life. And so that just looks like, you know, in a cyclical pattern of sin where I look on Facebook seven years ago and I realized that the minute I step out of this bad relationship, I continue to step into this relationship. And even though I stepped out of that relationship and into this one, I never seem to learn my lessons because I always end up ending up in the same cycles of relationships because I still believe the same lies. 
He's the father of lies. He doesn't actually create or destroy anything. He just imposes on it, distorts it, and, and has us look at it in ways that are not divine. He didn't create sex, but he distorts it. He didn't create alcohol, but he allows us to abuse it, or he, he, he tempts us to abuse it. He didn't create family, but he sure can disrupt it. And so, so we walk into this thing with a level of ignorance. We don't know. We think we're the end to ourselves. We think we understand the full narrative and the full story. And when, we, and when we step into this thing, we start to believe the lies without knowing that we're believing them. And they're simple lies. They're not scary kind of exorcist type of lies. They're just lies like, the world's about me. I deserve to be happy. I, I, this person, you know did this to me, so I should be able to do that back to them. Like These are the simple Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday things that hit us. And, and so it goes on to say that it's not just we're up against a ruler and a system, it's that the system becomes embedded in us. Okay, you've never, you've never seen a dog fly. You've never seen a dog swim. Because dogs can only do what dog, dog nature allows them to do. And what Paul is saying is that we only have a sin nature without Christ. That's our habit. It's our, it's our limitation. Like in, in, in 2,000 years past Christ, plus however long before Christ, all of the people that have ever tried to live have all tried to live relatively moral, righteous, successful lives. And what we've seen every time is that it's never worked. And if it would have worked, it would have worked by now, but it doesn't work. And so Paul, Paul shows us the prison we live in so that we might be able to break out of it he helps us see what we're not seeing. We're not connecting the dots. We have a selective memory. When we look back, we sort of remember the things we like to remember and have an overly Pollyannic, nostalgic view about it. And then we, we tend to be blind of the very things that actually would point us towards the truth, which is we're dead and we're dying. We have no life without Christ. And nothing we've ever done without Christ has ever been successful. So it's not the truth that's causing the problem. The, the problem is the distortion of the truth is that we can't see the truth for what it is. We're blind to it. And this is why Paul had prayed in the earlier verse that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation that the truth would set us free and those that the Son would set free would be free indeed. But the good news starts in verse 4, but because of His great love, it says, for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that we have been saved. I can, I can still remember when I got the call. I was at Starbucks uh, in, in South Bend, Indiana, and Kyra called me, and, and she says, do you want to know the gender of the baby? This was in 2006 before Rose was born. Uh, do you want to know the gender of the baby? This is before we did the Facebook thing with the balloons and the popping, all that stuff. We just did old-fashioned stuff, like just tell me what the gender of the baby is. And so she, she said, it's a girl. And it's like the next nine months, I'm like all emotional about everything, about different things. I'm like, a girl, like I only know Kyra and my mom. This is literally one third of my understanding of all the female species. Like this is a really big deal. I need to write a book or a blog or what? What do I need to be doing? Like this is a big moment. And he'd go in and everything was new and he'd go into the doctor's office, you know, and, and, and Kyra would just kind of like waddle up there like this and lay down. They put that jelly on the belly like this and then the big stethoscope thing and, and, the, and they put the thing up there in the, in the ultrasound. The ultrasound. You remember this? Those of you that have had kids, it's like you hear that little life in there, like that little heartbeat. And it's so fast, right? And you realize like, oh my goodness, like that heartbeat is separate from Kyra's heartbeat. Like Kyra's heartbeat could be beating slower or faster and, and Rose's heartbeat could be going on its own. And, 
and it would pump blood, like Kyra's blood would pump blood through her circulation, and then independently as Rose, Rose, Rose is pumping blood through her circulation, and she has her own feet, and she has her own arms, and she has her own legs, and she has her own eyes, and what you have is this miracle that where there was nothing, or where there was death, or where there was where there's darkness, there was nothing, there is now life. It's a, the miracle of life. And this is our story. This is what Paul is trying to communicate to us. We got ushered in to the presence of the Father. We were on our deathbed. This is the only story there is in the room. There isn't like, I was in isolation and then I got into community story. I was in a you know, cessationalist story and now I'm in a spirit-filled story. I was in a law story and now I'm in a grace story. No, there's only death to life stories. It's the only story there is. It's the only way that we're ever going to understand where we are. We'll always be lost. We'll always be dazed. We'll always be confused about the future when we don't understand the past. When we don't understand where we're from, we never know where we're going. He says, we come into this room on the operation table. The Holy Spirit is our advocate and our friend. He wheels us in on life support. It says that the Holy Spirit comes in and he impresses on all flesh for the conviction of sin and he pushes us towards the Father. And the Father says, the doctor in the analogy says, this is a bad case. There is no coming back from this. The illness that this person has, the sin that Paul is talking about theologically, is too much, too strong, too heavy, too impending. There is no hope for this child. This child is dead. The prognosis is death. The prognosis is flatline. The prognosis is no respiration, no health, no, no movement, death. But then the doctor says, there's a rich man in town. And what you, what you couldn't afford, the medicine that's needed to heal the sickness that you have, there is a medicine, there's a remedy, there's a pill, but it's worth 10,000 lifetimes that you can never pay. He says, there's a doctor in town and he's paid for everyone's medicine for anybody that would want to accept it. And this is what's so crazy is we get so wrapped up of like, how could Jesus be so exclusive? How could Jesus be so narrow that he's, he's the only way, really? Like there's no other way to get to life. There's no other way to, to, to spiritually, aren't we all just kind of on spiritual beings on a spiritual path and somehow you and I are all talking about the same God with different names and we're all around the elephant touching different sides of the elephant. No, there is no other elephant. There's only one man that has the anecdote for the sickness of sin and that is Jesus, the name above every other name, the only name that's gonna pass all these days, the only name that's going to endure all the tests of times, every kingdom, every principle, every power, there's only one name and it's Jesus that we can cry out. And so the only thing that matters about your spiritual life or death is what do you do with the name of Jesus? There's a scripture, there's a passage in scripture and it just talks about this miracle that happens when the heartbeat starts is what we used to hate about Jesus we now love. I used to get these birthday cards in the mail from my grandma I'd be like, Grandma, so cheap. All my other aunts and uncles, they send me these toys and all this money and stuff. Grandma sends me a Jesus card. That Jesus card, I just said, man, that is so cheesy. Many of us, we grow up in churches so dry toast. Remember, we're not in a vacuum. That's a world. That's an imposed narrative that somebody has already talked to you about by the time it gets to you. And he's so, Jesus is just so 
dry toast and religious and boring. And he has nothing, he has nothing to do with, with relationships. He doesn't know how to flirt. I mean, he doesn't know how to make a short film. He doesn't know how to write a song. I mean, Jesus has nothing to do with life. He has all the things to do with getting away from life because he's, he's not the author and the perfecter of life or anything. And I can't tell you. I just cannot tell you. It wasn't me that drug me to youth group. It wasn't me that took step after step to, to change the, the inner world of my life. I wasn't, I wasn't drawing near to him. He was drawing me towards him, is what John 10 would say. And now the things that used to be distasteful, like the Bible says you'd want to spit them out of your mouth because they're not appetizing to you. The spirit of life makes a heart beating you so that the things that you didn't like about Jesus are now changed into affection for Jesus. You begin to just fall more and more in love with his name. You recognize the power uh, in the midst of everything else which is so fickle and, and, and fatal and futile. Everything else is just not lasting except for the name of Jesus. That name becomes so important and significant and precious to you. And the movies that you used to watch and the jokes you used to laugh at and the, and the things that used to, used to inspire you, they don't inspire you anymore. Like there's an affection for Jesus and this kind of aversion and this kind of distaste for sin that begins to happen. It's a miracle. It's by no other cause or power other than the work of the Holy Spirit, the very pill, the anecdote against sin that God has given you, that the things that you used to love, you don't love them anymore. You watch these films and you think, man, you show them to your kids. You're like, this is going to be a great movie, kids. Watch this. It's so awesome. And then you watch it and you're like, boy, there's a lot of rated, there's a lot of F words in this movie. And you think, how did I ever, how did I ever watch this movie? And you realize like your nature is not the same. You're, you're not watching the same movie because the glasses you're wearing when, when you watch it is not the same. You go into church for the first time and I would be singing songs. I remember when I was 16 that if my friends knew I was singing these songs, they'd be making fun of me so bad about the songs that I was singing about Jesus being the lover of my soul and God, I long for you and all this kind of stuff. Like I would never want anybody to know I was singing these songs, but deep down in my, in my soul, my, those were the very things that were giving me life now. This is the miracle. This is our story. We're not telling lonely and lost to being found stories or I was, didn't have friends and now I have friends stories or I sinned a lot and now I sin a little bit less stories. We're not telling these stories. We're telling death to life stories. So I think the question the scripture is asking us this morning is that when you, when you get done with today, you're going to go home. And when you get to Monday or Tuesday, invariably, someone's going to ask you, what was your weekend like or what was your day like? And, and that's a bit of a counseling moment. Like, that's a Facebook memories moment. Because you have the authority in your life to interpret the past the way you want to interpret it. And I think, I think Paul is speaking to us this morning to warn us, like, the way that we immediately decide, even in the present, not only just like in the near past or the, or the far off past, the way that we think about the past greatly impacts the way that we walk forward into the future. And every time somebody asks you even a simple question like, how are you doing? You have an authority decision to make about how are you going to tell your story. The answers that come out of your mouth about where you went and what you did and why you did it, the narrative that you, that you play, the things you leave out, the things you ignore, have a decision to either agree with God's story over your life or agree with the story that you're trying to create for your life. And what Paul says is that, is that when we tell this story, when we understand the, the, the death and life story, if we fail to, to, to see things the way Jesus sees them, to understand the position that we are at as we tell the beginning, the middle, and the end of our stories, 
we have an important decision to make because it gives us access to grace and truth. This is probably the most important uh, statement in probably the entire book of Ephesians, but one of the most important statements theologically that we could find in all the New Testament. And that is, any story that finds itself looking backwards, understanding that we have been brought from death to life, not by our own doing, not by our own power, not by our own strength. It moves from a, from a righteousness and work story, and it moves into a grace and faith story. This is the, this is the verse that, that probably we could hang our hat on for all the New Testament. If you want to understand what is it like to inherit the kingdom of God, we are saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast. Grace and faith and grace and faith and grace and faith. A story that is founded in death to life is a story that lives in grace and faith and grace and faith and grace and faith and grace and faith. And when we understand, when we understand the grace and faith narrative, you've got to realize grace and faith are equally powerful, but they're not equal in terms of quantity and, 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 uh, and significance. Like, the amount of faith that we have compared to God's grace is like an ounce, a thimble, compared to the ocean of grace that we live in. I've heard it said before, faith is a ticket to what otherwise is an airplane of grace. It's the thing that gets you to everywhere you're going. Faith is not this, this huge thing that it takes 15 years in a doctorate to understand. Faith is, the only, is, is simply this. It's, it's just the, 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 the ability that's really a gift from God in the first place, the ability to know early and often to call on the name of Jesus. That's all that faith is. It's an access point into all the power and all the things that you, that you need to face your day-to-day life in the way that you are designed to live them. So this is how the narrative changes. A couple, th- couple thoughts for you as, as we go. This is how the narrative changes. When I understand a death-to-life narrative, I step into a grace and faith reality. And when grace and faith uh, is, is, is ushered in from a past of, of death, death and life, then grace stops becoming a doctrine and grace starts to become the doctor. So follow with me on this, but grace is not just a theology, it's not just a doctrine, but grace is a person, it's Jesus. And grace can never enable, it can only empower. Bill Johnson, the quote is, a quote by a pastor named Bill Johnson is that what the law expects, grace empowers you to do. So grace is not just a line in the sand where somebody raises their hand and says, hey, how much punishment will I get from Jesus if I um, go and uh, throw rocks at little kids? <laughs> like, like we approach grace and theology and God wanting to know the line so we can kind of get up to the end of it to see what, what we can do without falling off the edge. Grace is a person, not a doctor, and he's the doctor, and he is going to, to meet you and treat you in just the way that you need to be treated. Grace is going to call on you today to think of a friend that you haven't thought of in years. And grace isn't afraid of pushing you out of your comfort zone, knowing that it might be an awkward conversation because you haven't called them enough, but grace is going to empower you to pick up the phone and call them. How did you get there? Because you're smart, because you're a caring person, because you made a list of all the people that you want to write thank you notes to, like Jimmy Fallon. No, you didn't get there because of your own muster and might. You got there because of grace. Grace inspired you to do that. Grace encouraged you to do that. 
And the only reason why you're different from anybody else in, in any given room is only one name and one name alone, and it's Jesus. That's the only thing that makes anybody different from anybody else in the way it's a spiritual life and death, is how quickly can faith get you to call on the name of Jesus? Grace is the thing that is going to meet you in your deepest, darkest sin. And it's a miracle of life when you think about it that even when we're sleeping, our heart's still beating and we still continue to breathe. The breathing is a voluntary muscle but movement, but it's also an involuntary one. And God is, is covering us even in our deepest and darkest sins, in our deepest and darkest places. Grace is not the measuring line by which we try and jump over and meet the need. Grace is the thing that meets us right where we are, wherever we are. So grace is not an enabler. It's not um, an enlister. Grace is an empower. It is the doctor that can prescribe exactly what it needs. And grace will actually treat you sometimes differently than it treats me because it's not a legalist. Grace is speaking to you, it's meeting you, it's engaging you, it's talking to you. Grace, grace is the thing that empowers you. This is what Anne Lamont says, which I failed to send it to the people in the back, so I'll have to read it here. But Anne Lamont says it really well. She says, I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. Grace is not always a chicken noodle soup and a warm cup of tea. Grace will call you on your stuff. Grace will speak truth to you when you didn't want to hear it. Grace will wrestle you down. Grace will close a door that you're trying to kick open. Grace will stop you from moving forward on a decision that you wish you could have had because grace is not here to make you feel good. Grace is here to bring you into truth. And grace is not a doctrine. It's a person. It's, it's a doctor. It's a, per, it's, it's a power that you move into that enables you to walk the way that Jesus did. And faith. Faith just becomes just becomes a, 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 an instinct, a compulsion, a habit, if you will, an ethos to quickly and easily call in the name of Jesus. Anybody that's ever seen healings before, anybody that's ever seen um, great power happen before, if they're good instructors and they're good theologians, what they'll tell you backwards is the only thing that allows a person to get healed or the only thing that allows a person to get delivered or saved or set free is just the name of Jesus. And so faith, if it is a muscle, if it is a decision, if it's something that we try to engage, may it never become anything more than simply calling on the name of Jesus. That one, one ticket to an airline is just as good as the next ticket. There's no bigger tickets or first class tickets or, or harder working tickets or, or, or prettier tickets. There's just tickets. There's just faith that's given to us. Tickets that are offered in, in, in faith towards Jesus that this name has been true and I'll never stop trusting it. I won't start, start expecting that it's not going to be true tomorrow. And so in closing, I'll stop where we started with the conversation about the church. In this season, I believe, as we talked about before, that there is a test in our community. And that test, it doesn't come to us by law, and it doesn't come to us by condemnation, it doesn't come to us by judgment, and it doesn't come to us asking us to work harder than we, than we do. All tests, all seasons, everything really, after the cross, for those that call on the name of Jesus, everything after the cross is grace. God's attribute is love, but the only way that we can access his love is through his truth, or excuse me, through his grace. 
Because we're not chasing God, he's chasing us. If we were going to put a title on the name of our story, it wouldn't be the story of the young man who pursued Jesus. It'd be the story of the young man who ran away from Jesus and couldn't get away from him because his grace continued to reach. So in a season like this, in a corporate season, or in your personal season, wherever you are, what you need to know is that, is that God is holding on to you more than you're holding on to him. And that his plans for you are actually um, more providential and more permanent and more permeating than any plan that you would ever have for yourself. Is that the, 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 the hour that we're in, in in an individual season or in a corporate season isn't about finding the right plan. It's about taking the right posture towards him so that we can experience the grace he wants to deliver. Any test that he's ever given us is an invitation to greater grace. And so the opportunity that we have, the, the invitation that we have, the, the, the window, the doorway that we can step through in this season, in this congregation, is to understand that His grace is sufficient in this season. That we're not responsible for the season, we're only responsive to His voice. And that every step we take, every move that we make in Him, finds victory because He is a victorious God who has already won and accounted for all of the grace that we would ever need. It's all grace. It's not a little bit of truth and a little bit of... It's like even his truth has grace to it. Nothing is unrelational to him. Like when I'm an 11th grade teacher and I'm teaching U.S. history and I have a kid, which I did have at one time at a second grade reading level, I don't sit up here and teach at 11th grade reading level and just let him float off the, the end of the classroom. This is what grace is, is that if you're in fifth grade or in third grade or in second grade, or if you failed kindergarten, he's right there with you in that class, giving you the next step that you need as well as the materials to take it. In every season, there is no season that is outside of that dynamic. We are in a grace season. He is right where we are, and he has right what we need. And in this season, I challenge you, I implore you, I encourage you to walk with us side by side towards a grace that is great enough for us. That every step that is, that is ahead of us, it is provided for, I promise you. There is no voice that can call out to the name of Jesus in faith that will not be met by grace immediately. This is the answer that we have. This is the promise that we have. This is the position that we have in Christ is that we live in a death to life story and if a, if, if a God like that can, can awaken a dead person into life, then why, how, how could a God like that not be able to free you from the chains of selfishness or the chains of lust or the, or the chains of depression or the chains of anxiety? All that we have is all that we need. We call on him with faith to the name of Jesus and access the only power and authority that we'll ever need in the name of every other name, the name that's gonna last beyond every other church and every other problem and every other consideration and business model and every other thing is the name of Jesus. We can call on the name of Jesus and, and find his promises and inheritance that are, are true. Let's stand as I pray for us and we'll invite the band to come forward as we respond to him. So God, I thank you for, uh, for this church and um, I'm thankful that um, you are uh, just so permanently uh, tied and tethered to the future of your bride, to the future of your people, to the future of, of, of your family. God, your character um, has been tried and tested. Just as people have been tried and tested, your name has been tried and tested. And though it would be evil or though it would be good or though it would be people that were running from you or running towards you, anyone that would call on your name, all things have come and gone, but your name has been tested and has been found true. And God, that you would call our church to be tested and true in this season.
to call on you early, to call on you often, to trust in your grace and to know that um, our steps are not on our own authority, on our own power, on our own volition, but you are the one that's chasing us. We didn't chase you. You are chasing us. This is the only reality that we can live in. We'd be poor historians. We'd be poor futurists. We'd be poor biographers if we saw it any other way. God, may we live today in a death-to-life narrative in a grace and faith reality. We love you and seek you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please subscribe and leave us feedback on our iTunes channel. For more information about our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks again for exalting Jesus with us.